Okay, today we are continuing with our uh, series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. We, uh, the eight elements are listed under Roman numeral one in your outline, and the reason number six is in bold print is because we have been working on number six. This is actually the 14th week on element number six in the 62nd week overall of this series. So we've been doing this series about a year and a quarter. Uh, the first 20 messages we covered 0 through 4, which I kind of collectively call the bad news. And uh, which, uh, it, both, both the secular humanistic world and the church today uh, de-emphasize the bad news so that our ideas about sins are, and sin is pretty shallow. Like we think of sin as drinking too much beer or something or whatever, but we don't see that the deep, na depraved nature of man's sin makes you bound to run from God until his grace intervenes in your life. No one can come unless the Father draws him. And he, it's the kindness of God, Romans 2.4, that grants repentance. In Acts 11.18, after... Uh, after the Jews took exception with Peter that he had gone and preached to the, to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house, and so he's kind of defending himself, and he does this masterful job of turning the whole argument back on them and says, uh, so who was I to stand in God's way, implying of necessity, who are you to, to try to resist the purposes of God because of your religion? And it, sa it says that they quieted down, or literally in the Greek, they shut up. That's amazing. You can get religious people to shut up. That's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> and they shut up, and they said, so God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. So uh, elements five was, is Jesus Christ the solution. We spent, uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, that was, uh, I guess, 28 weeks on that. And so we've now been... Uh, in third, this is our thirteenth week, I believe, in uh, in element uh, six. What it means to receive Jesus Christ. The gospel is something that you uh, have to respond to. It requires a response, and Jesus makes it clear that fallen man wants to uh, embrace a myth of neutrality and a myth of I'll, later. I'll decide later. I have talked to many people who say, "I know God is true." I know the Christian faith is true, but I'm just living for myself for now because I have God on hold, as if uh, it's just uh, some easy thing to to repent and, and get your life on track, and that you can decide, you know, if you don't want God today, what makes you think you're going to want him tomorrow? So, um, Receiving Jesus Christ is a response. Now, the reason this series is so long for newcomers is many, many, many uh, evangelical leaders, the Gospel Coalition people, the Nine Marks people, no matter who you talk to, people are starting to realize that we have, since, world, since about the Civil War of, in America, in other words, late 1800s, Western Christians, which have become dominated by American Christians, uh, have increasingly reduce the gospel into to more and more Gnostic uh, Christianity and less and less biblical Christianity. And what we're really about here at Grace Christian Fellowship is, is rethinking, that is rediscovering by thorough Bible study, by thoroughly seeking from God, by everyone in the church becoming a Bible scholar, 
And, uh, you know, we are trying to restore biblical Christianity. But before you can restore anything, you've got to understand it. And before you can understand anything, you've got to study enough. And it's simple as that. Um, You know, if you don't get alone with God, loving to study his word and so forth, you're going to be missing a major anchor of the Christian life. So, um, so that's a little bit why we're going so long. Now, what we've done so far in element six is we covered a lot of words that have to do with salvation. Salvation is called soteriology, and that's probably the, the word saved is probably the most misused soteriological word in the church today. So we talked a lot about what saved means and how it has a past, present, and future meaning. And, uh, and, and all of them, the above are applying to us if, if we're walking for, with Christ. And it's a complete rescue or deliverance that we are unable to bring about at all for ourselves. And we talked about the word receive and the word right. He gave to those who received him, he gave the exousia, that is the, both the power and the authority. We have reduced Christianity in, in both Reformed and Evangelical circles to God giving us the, the authority, to his imparting righteousness, but not giving us the empowerment to, change, to live an experiential changed life, to live like Christ by the grace of God, to bring forth the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Christ-likeness. And what we have to discover is how to take this stuff out of the theoretical and into the real and have it incarnated not only in individual you know, modern Christianity is radically individualistic, but biblical Christianity is radically com- uh, community-oriented. So the gospel is never meant to be lived in isolation from other Christians at a church where you go there for what you can get out of it. But it was meant to disciple people into being frontline soldiers in the mission of God in the universe and to do that corporately together. So... Uh, we've looked at words about salvation. Then we got into the, the whole thing, the whole idea of, of uh, the new birth, being born again, regeneration, as it's called in the, theological circles, made alive and quickened in King James Old English. And, uh, and then we began to look at conversion, which uh, consists of two things. First is the new birth. Secondly, is repentance and faith. So actually, point number one, the new birth. Point number two, conversion. But point number two has an A and a B. The A is repentance, the B is faith. Now, repentance often is the key word that summarizes the whole process, like in Acts 2.37, like in uh, Matthew 4.17, and so forth. But... um, Repentance involves all the concepts we studied. We studied true and false repentance. We labeled false repentance remorse. We studied what it means to be convicted, to be contrite of heart, to confess our sins, uh, to turn, you know, what, you know, we gave eight biblical definitions of repentance. We talked about renouncing or renunciation, making restitution, reconciliation, and, and re- redefining relationships. All that's involved in repenting. So today we want to turn the corner and start talking about faith. Uh, last week we looked at reconciliation and, and, and redefining relationships. And right above Roman numeral 7 on the first page, I listed five areas 
that you need to rethink biblically, and those relationships need to be re, re, not just redefined in a conceptual way, but you need to rework out how you're going to relate to civil government, to the church, to the, your family of origin, to the family of origin God's calling you to leave as an adult to, to form a new family, and so forth. Um, all, how, how, you, how do you relate to old friends? How do you make new friends? What, what becomes your priorities relationally? And so forth. Now, uh, today we're going to look at uh, belief. And I'm going to start with a little bit of a chunk of scripture that I'm really giving us so we can get the context. But I really want to look at Mark 1.15. I just decided it'd be better to put it in context. Now, hopefully you know enough about the early chapters of the gospel to realize that this same material is covered in Matthew 4, 1 through 22. And Matthew goes into more detail than Mark. So Mark, we're talking about nine verses in Mark, as opposed to 22 verses in Matthew, covering uh, what Jesus did immediately after his water baptism and immediately after the Spirit came upon him and, and empowered him for his ministry. He always had the Holy Spirit, just like someone always has the Holy Spirit when they're truly regenerated. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born by the Holy Spirit. He was so full of the Holy Spirit that when, when he was in Mary's womb and she greeted Elizabeth, John the Baptist, in, uh, in, who was six months old, leaped for joy inside his mother's womb when he, when he heard the voice uh, uh, carrying the anointing that Mary carried because of Christ in her. So... <clears throat> Jesus, there was never a time when he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. But like in Pentecost, like in, in true, if you truly analyze the Bible, you must have a second encounter with the Holy Spirit called being baptized in the Holy Spirit, which releases spiritual gifts into your life and empowers you to live the Christian life. The Christian life isn't difficult, it's impossible. And it's meant to be impossible. And it's not meant, it can't be lived like by mere men. That's why Paul takes exception with the Corinthians, the most carnal, fleshly, immature church in the New Testament. And he says, are you not living like mere men? Like he's astounded, like a Christian is living just like a normal human being out of their own power and their own reasonings and their own wisdoms. What in the heck are you doing? You're supposed to be living by the power of the Holy Spirit out of the resurrected life of Christ. That's just everyday normal Christianity. A Christian is to be a superhuman. With the same, the same temptations, passions, struggles as everyone, but a grace that, that they can't understand. So we respond to situations differently. We work differently. We prioritize differently. And we have supernatural gifts to, to bring to bear in practical situations. So Luke also covers this same information, and he covers it in even more detail. So it runs all the way from the start of Luke chapter 4 all the way through chapter, uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 11. And we're basically uh, just touching on three, three events. After Jesus is baptized in the Spirit, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness so that he can be tested because there's a big step between being baptized in the Spirit and, and coming out in the power of the Spirit. Then he begins his ministry 
of proclamation of the kingdom of God with repent and believe. Uh, Matthew's version only says repent, but he's using repentance in the fuller sense of representing everything in conversion. And uh, Mark, Mark uses repent and believe. And then he begins to make disciples and say, follow me and, and I'll make you fishers of men. And it shows something that we you know, emphasized when we were talking about renunciation. I think one of the biggest problems in American Christianity today is people haven't made a clear break with, the, with sin, the devil, Satan, death, and the things you're supposed to be breaking with and renouncing in your water baptism. Many people just have too many shared files with their old life, their old worldliness, their old relationships, their old priorities, their old values. And uh, so it, I want to emphasize that, that they immediately, when he called them, left their father Zebedee in the boat and so forth. So let's read this. Immediately the Spirit impelled him. When you see the asterisk, the New American Standard is trying to be more sensitive to time words than most translations. So he's really, it's a way that the Greek actually just brings you into the story. So the Spirit impelling him, and it's kind of like, we're in the story. We're, we're following with him being impelled by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days and being tempted by Satan. And he was in, with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now, that's much shorter than Luke's and, Mar and Matthew's version of the three temptations and so forth. Now, after John had been taken into custody, all three uh, bring out that John was taken into custody. Jesus came into Galilee, the northern part of of. Israel, where he was from, where Nazareth and Capernaum were, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the sea, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, and, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately there left their nets and, and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants in a way to follow him. Now, there, at the bottom of the page you have Matthew's version, so go ahead and turn on over. Um, look at the very end of what we're going to look at. Uh, well, I guess I didn't include it, but we're going to be looking over the next weeks at some words like following, obedience, because true faith is, you know, what we've done is we've turned faith into a Greek abstract kind of faith. We measure whether we believe, whether we believe a doctrinal statement. And we have the right Christology and the right soteriology and, and the right view of the inspiration of Scripture and so forth. But all of that is just a stepping stone into true biblical faith, which is a trusting in him, relying on him, clinging to him in such a way that you follow and obey. You look at the inner attitudes of your heart, your motivations, your priorities. Look at your schedule book, and you can tell if you're believing or not. So um, it's way more than an abstract, uh, analytical theoretical conceptual idea it's a relationship that involves walking a certain way jesus said i'm the way that is i'm the internet path to get there whether <laughs> i'm the, i'm the highway you've got to walk with 
me and I've got to walk through you and in you and you've got to go where I'm going and you have to be where I want you to be. And you have to be who I want you to be. So hopefully as we go on today, we're going to bring all this out. Now, the first thing I want to bring out is that people struggle for faith. And almost all struggles for faith are rooted in a lack of repentance. Repentance is the prerequisite for faith. That's why the Bible always lists repent and believe. Okay, so um, you might say it's a necessary stepping stone or it's the precedent or antecedent. It's the key, repentance is the key that unlocks the door of faith. God actually starts to give you faith and you have to turn toward it and receive it. You have to repent. And um, John 7, 17, I decided to give you both the NASB and the ESV two of the three translations we use the most in this church. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know. Faith is not a, what the, wor- the world thinks that what, we, that what we have is a hoping, a leap of faith. Well, it, gee, I, it seems like this might be right. Faith has nothing to do with this. Faith is a knowing that you know that you know. And it's a knowing who you know. And that's why you know. Whoever, uh, if anyone's willing to do his will, he'll know the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak from myself. John 3.33 says, Whoever has believed him has set his seal to this, that God is true. What it means to have faith in God is to renounce your trusting in yourself and your own perspectives. Our, our country today is just awash in an idolatrous relationship with itself called narcissism. And there's this constant opinion polls of, I believe, I think, and, and guess what? God doesn't care what you believe or what you think. His, his perspective is correct. And, and he's inviting you to get on his perspective. And to give up relying on your own understanding and your own wisdom and your own wits and your own strength and your own talents and your own gifts. The biggest idol Americans have is themselves. John 17, 717 in the ESV says, If anyone's will is to do God's will. That's what it really gets down to. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Spiritual confusion always comes when there is a battle of whether you're willing to do what God wants you to do or not. The reason people get spiritually confused is because they're looking for loopholes. You know, there's an old, there was an old comedian named W.C. Fields. Probably none of you know who he is. Maybe some of you do. He was back when there was talkies, or before there was talkies, silent films. And then he lived on to be in spoken films, and he had this weird voice and sort of nasal. And, and uh, one time he was flipping through the Bible, and when he, he was in the hospital and sick, and he's flipping through the Bible, and they said, W.C. Fields, you don't believe in God. You've not been a Christian. What are you doing looking through a Bible? He goes, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's where most American Christians live. 
I'm looking for that way that I can avoid that nagging conscience that God is real and go to church just enough and get one toe in the pool just enough to try to, to, try to minimize the call of God in, on, in my life. I can't shake him off altogether because he's revealed too much of himself to me, but I'm going to be darned if I'm going to sell out and, and live a life that says I was bought with a price and I'm no longer my own. That's where most American Christians are living. And true faith renounces all self-ownership, all self-everything <laughs> as the basis. Now, there's a proper loving yourself in the sense of stewarding as your life as a gift from God who owns it and therefore calls you to steward it. And you st but it's not about your vacation or what you want to do or what things you like to do. The church is so worldly today, it's, it, it's scary, frankly. So, repentance is the precursor that unlocks the door to faith. If you're struggling to understand, it's because you're struggling to be willing. One of the reasons we believe that there are three delivery systems of grace, deep knowledge of Scripture from the right paradigms of interpretation, a deep walk and empowered by the Holy Spirit where the supernatural becomes normal and natural daily, and a deep sense of Christian community where you serve, give, take, and you walk in the light with people who are qualified to help you hear what God's saying. Because when you're personally involved, when there's uh, courting going on or when there's vocational decisions to be made and so forth, it's very hard to be willing to do God's will when, be, when, when in fact part of God's will is probably a cross to bear in that situation. And you're a fool if you just take your own counsel into these things. You're just asking to be battered about by, the, by demons and your flesh and everything the advertising industry and the world wants you to be and do. It's foolishness not to deeply avail yourself of a, of a balanced approach to all three tools of, of grace. Uh, called, as John has brought out in several teachings in recent months, the means of grace. That's what they've historically always been called. Now, let's get into a defin dictionary definition of believe, belief, and faith. Uh, and what I want you to do, understand is that like, the biblical definition and our culture's definition is radically opposed to each other. So if you just go to an English secular dictionary and you look up believe or belief, you're going to find out what the world thinks faith is right now. Not what the Bible thinks faith is. There's a German word called zeitgeist, which means the spirit of the age. It's very similar to the French word milieu, uh, which is probably more common in our culture. Uh, that's probably more likely you know that word. But both of them refer, refer to the spirit of the age, the attitudes of the age, the values of the age. The, every, every society has axioms and postulates. They have things they take to be true that have never been proven to be true, that have never been critically examined. The entire evolutionary worldview is based on leaps of irrational faith. And people assuming certain uh, 
ideas about naturalism and there is no God and so forth. Uh, and that if science says it's true, that's, that's what it's a religion called scientism. In the 70s, for instance, if you didn't believe the earth was hidden, heading into a new ice age and we were all going to freeze to death within a generation or two and we're running, uh, you were considered an idiot in academic circles. I remember trying to defend, you know, uh, as an undergraduate in a political science class, trying to defend that perhaps we're not really going into a new ice age and the sky is not really falling. It's too bad Taylor's not here because I can never remember. Is that Chicken Little or Little Red Hen? She, she got me straight on that one time. This, which one is the guy that's falling? Chicken Little? That, you know, that's always... Of course, politicians want you to have that perspective because that's how they can grab for more unconstitutional power all the time. So now, if you don't believe that the world's heading into a new heat wave, <coughs> now you're an idiot. Just amazing how science has changed that in 40 years. When I was in sixth grade, the Earth was thought to be 2.2 billion years old. Now it's 8 billion years. And I'm, I'm like, wow, I'm... I've lived long enough for the earth to become 7.8 more billion years old or something. Did the math wrong there, but what you, you get the point. 5.8. Wow, and just my brief, you know, 50, I'm not even 60 till December. The earth is aged 5.8 billion years just since I've been in sixth grade. Wow. Time's really flying. <laughs> and, you know, whatever the scientists say, is true is, is like people are actually intimidated by that i'm i'm reading a, a whole book on theology right now and they're in it's uh they're debating various schools of thought about the gospel in the last two or three centuries and and so forth and he keeps saying well the majority of scholars think this and the majority of scholars think that and i keep thinking what does that have to do with anything that's actually called an a, fallacy, a fallacy in logic. An appeal to, to the majority is a fallacy. You know, I once went into a philosophy professor's mind's office, and he had a big poster with a big pile of manure and lots of flies on it. And, he, and it said, eat, you fill in the scubalon, uh, eat scubalon, because 10 million flies couldn't possibly be wrong. So, let's talk about what real faith is. Um, to have confidence in the truth, that is the person who's the existence of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, the reliability of someone or something... Jesus, the living word of God, and the Bible, the written word of God. Confidence in the assertions of a person to have conviction, persuaded of the truth. Uh, belief is a noun, something believed, a conviction. Confidence in the truth of someone or something. Uh, confidence, faith, trust, a worldview. One of the things that you'll hear from their definitions of faith, they think they don't have a worldview. They think that they're just uh, objective. The whole use of the word objective means they have a worldview. Because as Christians, we don't believe in objective truth. All truth comes from God, who is the ultimate subjective opinion on everything. And his opinion is truth. He is truth in himself. There is no, there is no abstract, non-personal 
uh, objective facts that don't need to be interpreted by someone. And God is the proper interpreter and definer of all things. We don't, if they say uh, objective truth, they're saying, I believe in Plato's worldview that man, and Protagoras of Abdera was a sophist philosopher uh, that Socrates and Plato built their ideas on. And he, and he said, man is the measure of all things, which by, by which they meant, and Plato took it further, what they mean is man's reason is the ultimate definition of all things. And we live in a culture that has thoroughly bought that. And so whatever you think to be true is your truth. And that's just so foolish, they, and it's so blind. And if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into a pit. It's very blind. But it's, a, it's the basis of a complete worldview, because worldviews have three ingredients. Who or what is ultimately real? They're assuming there, are, there is no God. Who or what is ultimately real? And, some, and to, them, the, to them, there's a what that's ultimately real. This cosmic chaos and uncertainty. To us, there's a who that's the ultimate reality. And Paul says, I know him in whom I have believed. See, our basis for real knowledge biblically is that God reveals himself to you in such a way by the power of his spirit, by the power of his word, often through various ways through his church, all three of the delivery systems of grace and always involved, in such a way that you know that you know that you know that he is the truth. And the wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound thereof, you can't see where it's coming from or where it's going, so is everyone who's been born of the Spirit. We know that we know that we know, even that they, when they don't know. Listen to 1 John five nineteen. Now, if, the, if we weren't too religious, I'd have to say this is a lot of, let's just say, male testicles. Uh, 1 John five nineteen, he says, we know that we're of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, if that's not a, wow, if that's not a divisive statement, I don't know what is. <laughs> that's polarizing. That's like, whose side are you going to be on? Faith, uh, stronger and shakable belief in something or someone, a specific system of beliefs, is called a faith, principles that are firmly held, trust in God and his actions and promises, complete confidence or trust in the person, a set of propositions, etc., a worldview, allegiance to a loyalty, person, cause, or mission. If you have faith, you will have a mission. And so even atheists have a faith, and there's an aggressive atheism because every, you were, guess what? You were made in the image of God, and you are an evangelist. Now, many of us must lack such social confidence and knowledge of our faith and so forth that we're intimidated to share our faith. But everybody wants to see people come to their faith. When I was a you know, dope-smoking hippie dealing drugs in high school, I, I didn't, you know, like, I, I wasn't trying to increase the number of people doing drugs so I had a bigger market to sell in. <laughs> well, 
I just thought, I, I want you to know what I know about drugs. I thought my two older brothers would never come around to smoking pot. <laughs> and when they finally did, it was like, oh, happy day. You know, I get my robe on and I was singing marijuana gospel songs. Or, you know, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But, you know, it's like everybody is trying to convert everyone. That's what they, that's what TV and, and YouTube and everything is all about. Everything you read and see is trying to convert you to someone or something. It has a message. And most Christians just are like caught in this inane, idiotic, uh, shallow little sayings. And you know what I'm talking about. The kind of stuff you get when you follow Christian pop culture and music and stuff ridiculous you know we we come from a lineage of christians who died for their faith who rose up in the, the apologists of the second and third century conquered the roman empire by the sheer brilliance of their arguments they weren't scared of the evolutionary faith of the greco-roman world they made it look foolish which it is It's based on irrational leaps of faith, and ours is not. And you should know why. It's called presuppositional apologetics. There's five different approaches to apologetics, some say. I think there's three, basically. But uh, the, what's called presuppositional apologetics, if you don't know what that is, and you've been coming to our church more than 10 days, what is wrong with you? <laughs> go home and look it up look up Cornelius Van Til and Rusas Rushduni and, and you know there's, uh, there's a whole series of books that they compare you know like five views of this and three views, three views of the millennium there's one called five views of apologetics read it All right, now, because what you need to understand is that fallen man is not, when you're sharing the gospel, like Jesus said uh, when, in, the, in the parable of Abraham and Lazarus, Abraham uh, lifting up his you know, voice from the flames of hell, says, send someone to warn my brothers not to come here. And Jesus said, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to them, neither will they be persuaded if someone ra raises from the dead. Now, proof that Jesus raises from the dead is called evidential apologetics. And what you need to understand is they don't care if the evidence is there or not. Now, we, we believe in evidential apologetics because the disciples and the apostles used it. And Jesus told them he would. But he, if you notice, he said in John 15, 26, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will bear witness of me, and you will also bear witness of me. And you can't bear witness without the power of the Holy Spirit getting to the root levels of their assumptions and their postulates, their presuppositions. You have to help them see the sinfulness of their heart that is running from the truth and is hiding from God as surely as Adam did in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from the presence of God. And, they, and all self-help psychology and stuff is men's attempts to hide their nakedness. And you have to learn how to lovingly carry a sharp enough sword. 
You know, like when, a, when, a, when they do laser surgery or any other kind of cutting, it's not necessarily always bad. Sometimes you need a cancer cut out. I had a surgery 13 years ago. Well, longer than that now. 13 and a half years ago, I guess is all it was. That saved my life. I wouldn't be here today with, if I hadn't had that surgery. You need to learn by the grace of God to use the sword of God's spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit to do laser surgery on the depths of their heart. A man's uh, ambitions and motives is a deep well, but a man of wisdom knows how to draw them out. Help them see the sin in their heart for their own salvation and their own sake. That's what I'm trying to do always in pastoral meetings. I'm trying to listen a while and then help you see Christ. That's why I always quote like 25 to 50 scriptures in every discussion because I don't really care about my opinion or yours. <laughs> what we're seeking is God's view. All right, let's keep on. Seven clarifying or defining statements regarding true biblical faith. <laughs> In seven minutes. Uh, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, it's real evidence. It's just, we're just not buying into that empirical evidence is always truth and the only truth. That is scientific or observable evidence. Because the power of the Holy Spirit is concrete, observable, and knowable. And he gives it to anyone who's willing, he gives him to anyone who's willing to do his will. For by it the men of old received their commendation, or New American Standard is gained approval. In other words, they were justified. They were made righteous by faith. They weren't saved by works in the Old Testament like the modern evangelicals teach. There never was a time when anyone was ever saved by works. By faith we understand. I tell people this all the time. You know how I became a creationist? When I was 17 years old, after I had these out-of-body experiences and went to hell and all the different things I did, and then I decided to become a Christian and quit drugs, and, and I began to read God's Word. And I read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I had been brainwashed in public schools for 17 years, and even Catholic schools that were humanistic. And, uh, but I said, God, do you want us to believe this is actually how it happened? That this is real history I'm reading? Now, I came from a family who studied history in one of the best history departments in the, in the state of Ohio in my high school. And I knew how to t tell whether something's historically true or not. I knew what's called historical methodology. And the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, yes, this is my word. This is how it happened. And I became a creationist that minute. And I've been a, a six-day creationist ever since. I've read hundreds of books on the subject now. I would love to debate any evolutionist, anytime, anywhere. And I don't need any preparation. But what I do know is that I know it because I know it because I know him who I have believed. And God is true and everyone else a liar, as the Bible says. Number one, biblical faith or belief is relational as I've been stressing, and it's experiential. 
It's derived from relationship with God, and it produces relationships with God and, and who God wants you to be rightly related to. You can't say you're rightly related to God if you're not rightly related to the Christian community and, and, and the authority God's put in your life and so forth. If you're not willing to do that, you're, you're fooling yourself. You don't believe it. Now, I'm not going to be able to get through all the scriptures here, but you have them listed for you. Biblical faith is not a leap, but it's a knowing him in whom we believed. It's certainty. Hebrews 11.1, 1, we already covered. Uh, verse 3, we understand by faith. Verse 6, it's impossible to please him without faith. You know, it's amazing how many Christians I meet who when you get down to the motivations of their heart, they don't really believe that God's a rewarder of those who seek him. They still have this view of God that he's just some cosmic killjoy with a fly swatter just waiting for you to step out of line so he can smack you back into the position or whatever. You know what? He wants to share life with you. He wants to reward you. Now, he doesn't want to reward you how you think you should be rewarded because he is, is God. And he knows that sometimes that what you think you need is not what would be good for you. All of life gets destroyed when you grab certain things outside God's timetable and outside of God's provision. And he will in the biggest areas of life, in, in courtship and marriage, in vocational calling, in ministry, he will, he will cause you to lay your Isaacs on the altar and to kill them so that he, so that he can ultimately give them these things to you without their stealing your heart away from him. Because if anything steals your heart away from him, you've lost everything. Who cares if you have a crummy house with no drywall on the walls? <laughs> Oops. Uh, <laughs> my wife cares, that's who. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, what the heck? Someday we'll make some progress. Who knows? I mean, it's only been 25 years that we've been remodeling this monstrous place. So it's like, it's like sin. It just keeps coming at you. <laughs> All right. All right, number three, biblical faith is not abstract or stagnant. It's growing or declining all the time. You know, sometimes I kind of, uh, you know, because we just don't have enough pastoral leaders maturing and, and getting to where we need them to get to, to get to everybody. And sometimes I'll think someone's doing pretty well and so forth. And then all of a sudden you, you find out to her, oh, my God, you know, the everything's falling apart for this person because they lost that connection with getting along with God. Biblical faith is not abstract. It's not un unclear what it is. It's not confusing. And it, because it's relational, you're either getting closer to your spouse or further away all the time. You're either getting closer to your brothers and sisters or further away all the time. And primarily, that's actually... More, more foundational is if you're drawing closer to God, you will draw closer to everyone. 
If you're not drawing closer to God, you can spend all kind of time with all kind of people doing all kind of fun things. And you cannot know anything about them or or have any depth of insight or anything because you there's certain things you can only get in alone sitting at God's feet with like Mary did reading his word. And I you know that I'm jealous for you to become that kind of person so that one hour with you is worth what what 30 hours used to be. Biblical faith is not abstract or stagnant. Number 4, biblical faith produces obedience. Now, in some cases, I have a few of the scriptures left there. I didn't have enough. Uh, so biblical faith must be incarnational. If you're not living it out, you don't believe it. Oh, I believe in tithing, and someday I'm going to get around to it when I, there's less financial pressures. <laughs> I believe in this, this or that, and someday, you know, that's why they have a company that makes these round little things that say T-U-I-T on it. They're called round to it. Someday you'll get around to it. Biblical faith produces obedience. Paul was given apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. If you're not following, you don't really believe. So you need to be like the man in Matthew 17 that says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. That's why, you know, anyone who doesn't spend time alone with God is a proud man. It's as simple as that. How could you not get alone with God and cry out to God every day? Because I can't do this thing. I need help. I need a rescue operation to come to my heart every day. Number five, real repentance and faith are both required for forgiveness, reconciliation, and salvation. Number six, biblical faith is initiated and completed by God. That's why you need to seek him. Because he's the initiator of your faith. And if you are seeking God, it's because he gave you enough faith to seek God. <laughs> and all, like all hungers, the more you seek him, the more you'll want to seek him. The more you read his word, the more you're going to want to read his word. Pornography is like that. Eating the wrong kind of foods, I'm an expert at that, uh, <laughs> is like that. You know, all of life is like that. You're either cultivating obedience and sanctification in intimate relationship or not. Uh, biblical faith produces justification. So that's all the time I have. Next week we're going to look at some words probably like, uh, well I have on here, we might look at justification, but uh, we're also going to look at following and, and uh, becoming fishers of men and, and what how all of those are actually the signs of real biblical faith. Amen.